Well, the nation is buzzing. Water coolers are, conversations are quite populous. Twitter is a bit of a frenzy, and perhaps our anxiety is growing. At what, you might ask? Well, of course, what the pundits and TV talking heads tell us is the most important election of our lifetime. Well, they tend to say that, don't they, at every election? The most important election of your life. We are told that our future hangs in the balance. Our 401k accounts might disappear depending on what happens on November the 8th. Now, before I lose you here for just a second, elections are important. As Christians, it is a part of our civic duty to participate in the public square and the conversations there and participate in elections, and elections do matter. But as R.C. Sproul puts it so helpfully, Ultimately, it is not who sits in the White House that matters, it's who sits over the White House. In other words, what matters most for us as Christians is the belief and the truth that God is sovereign. We tend to use that word and throw it around a bit as if it is understood. The word sovereign means to reign with complete control. It's an old word, uh, an old English word. We don't use it much. Often to refer to royalty. They are the sovereigns, sovereign ones. The one who has control and power over a particular land. But when the Bible speaks of the sovereignty of God, it it refers not to geography, a country with a border, but to a people. That God has a kingdom. It is not marked off by rivers and oceans and mountain ranges, but it is marked off by people. People that this God calls out of darkness into light and transfers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. God exercises His sovereignty every time a sinner repents and believes upon Christ. In this way, God undermines the most powerful governments this world has ever known by converting its people into another kingdom. Such that our citizenship is not here on earth, but in heaven where our king rules and reigns. You see, the story of the Bible is a story about God's people under His control and in a particular place. In this way, God rules and reigns. And so when we speak about Jesus being a king, when we sing 
those wonderful Christmas carols and Advent songs about our King has come. When we hear Jesus utter that He has come to preach good news of the kingdom of God, we, we want to be careful that we do not define His kingdom or His sovereignty according to our own experiences here in this world, but according to the revelation we find in His Word. And I invite you this morning to turn in His Word to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We're thankful for Pastor Brett preaching last week for me. It's always good to get a break and to sit under the preaching of God's Word. It is a reminder that the preaching pastors are not the end-all and be-all of pastoral ministry. They need the Word just as much as the congregation does. We are not above the Word, but we all must sit under it to be fed by it as a means of God's grace. I want to remind you where we've been. We are at a, a hinge point in the Gospel of Luke. We have learned from the very beginning of our study of this letter that Luke, one of Paul's disciples, has set out to write an orderly account for another fellow Christian, Theophilus. We notated a number of things. Number one, that Luke writes to Christians. Luke is writing to you. To give you an orderly account that you might be assured of the things that you have come to know and believe. And so with that in mind, when we read, we want to read with this understanding that Luke is compiling this narrative, not necessarily chronological. Orderly, as we learned very early on in our study, does not mean chronological. As we will find this morning, our story that begins of Jesus there in Galilee, in His hometown of Nazareth, is not the first thing Jesus did in His ministry, but it's placed in first order in order for Luke to help you and I understand who Jesus is. Luke wants Theophilus and for us as his readers to understand right out of the gate, the first thing that Jesus utters is that he is the Christ. We've heard from the angelic beings. We've heard the testimony from Jesus' own mother Mary. We've heard from Zechariah and from Elizabeth. We've heard from the John the Baptist. We've heard from the voice from heaven that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the the long-awaited Messiah. But now, we hear from Jesus Himself. And Luke has organized these subsequent chapters, beginning here in chapter 4 and verse 14, all the way to chapter 9 and verse 50, around His ministry in Galilee. Galilee. It is a region within the nation of Israel, a a really not important region. It, It really wasn't special. It's interesting that Jesus begins His ministry not in Jerusalem, the sort of center of religious life of God's people, but in an outskirts kind of 
podunk country town where there's really no significance. In fact, one of the disciples will say to Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth itself, a small town of 400 people, kind of backwoods country. What good can come of such an obscure place? But it's in obscurity that Jesus makes clear that His ministry is not for the rich and powerful, the religious leaders, but that His message of reconciliation with God is for those who are humble and broken and poor. This is who Jesus came to save. Friends, with this in mind, I want to begin reading in verse 14. If you're not accustomed to looking at the Bible, the larger numbers in your Bible are the chapter numbers, and these little tiny numbers, they're not footnotes, they are verse numbers. And uh, I'm going to begin reading at that little 14. It's on 859 in the Pew Bibles. Um, I have nothing interesting to say. Uh, This is what we're going to think about here this morning. We want to hear what Jesus has to say, Uh, so keep your Bibles open. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a, spirit, and a report about him went throughout the region, surrounding the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it. And found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in the truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any, any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, as we consider this passage before us this morning, I read it in its entirety so that you might get a sense of Luke's purpose, a sense of Luke's purpose. Luke is compiling this narrative for a particular goal, a particular aim. Like little hooks that hang on a hat, Jesus is portrayed here in a particular light with subsequent stories in order to prove what he said is true. And so the point that Luke has for us is that Jesus is the long-awaited king who would fully and finally deliver those who were in need of a Savior from their sins and usher in the kingdom of God. In other words, our passage this morning presents to us the identity of Christ. Jesus says that I am the Messiah, and then He proves it by fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. He, in other words, Luke gives us illustrations to illustrate the truth that Jesus is the Messianic King, the Davidic King who has come to fully and finally deliver God's people. But also in this story, we are confronted with these demons who seem to want to reveal this information about Jesus. And Jesus is very cautious. You see, the the nation of Israel had unrealized expectations. They had unbiblical expectations of what the Messiah would, would do and bring. And so here we have before us the real identity of Jesus as the long-awaited servant king. And so this morning, if you take notes, we have here really four points I want us to consider. First, Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. Then Jesus' rejection. There in verses 22 through 30, as the, his own hometown rejects him, a, a foreshadowing of what is to come. We see also in verses 31 through 41, Jesus' power, and then in this final verses, Jesus' priority. Each and every one of these hangs off of the revelation of Jesus' identity. So if you will, turn with me and look again at verse 14 and 15. Luke tells us as Jesus is delivered from the temptations there in the wilderness, being refreshed and restored, Matthew tells us by angels, 
Jesus burst onto the scene and begins his public ministry. And Luke wants us to make sure we understand two things. Number one, Jesus' ministry was divinely inspired. Divinely inspired. We see here that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Luke has a particular fascination with the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, He mentions all throughout the the book of Luke and of Acts, of the Spirit's work among God's people. And particularly here, he makes clear that Jesus is Spirit-empowered. Spirit-empowered. He is giving us an affirmation of His ministry and the authority by which Jesus goes about His work. It is, if you will, a divine seal of approval. This is God's beloved Son doing the Lord's work. The Father has declared Him to be His legitimate Son, and the Spirit has empowered Him for ministry. But we see also as Jesus begins ministry, verse 15, that as He taught in their synagogues, He was glorified by all. Luke wants us to know from the very beginning that Jesus is divine. He is fully God and fully man. For God does not share glory with any man. Therefore, Jesus must be God. He must be the divine Son. And so as He begins His ministry, we see these two aspects of Jesus' identity. Both Spirit-empowered and divinely enabled Son of God. And as Jesus begins, we are told he goes to Nazareth. Now again, I've already indicated, if you have your Bibles open, I'll point out what I'm talking about. So look with me at verse 23. Verse 23. I've already indicated that this is not chronological. This is not chronological. In other words, Luke has taken a a story that happened later and, and inserted it here, moved it forward in the action in order to get a little bit of the ending. You've ever watched a movie before, perhaps you've made it all the way through the movie, come to the ending, and you're like, huh, huh. And when you go to re-watch the movie, you begin to see certain aspects that you didn't pick up on, but because you saw the ending, you now can kind of watch the movie again a little bit slower and, and pay particular attention how the ending helped interpret the beginning. And this is what the, the gospel writer does. He brings a bit of the ending, the conclusion, up to the beginning so that you will understand why Jesus heals. He doesn't heal because he's benevolent. Jesus' healing ministry is not about benevolence, but about declaring his identity by proving he was who he said he was. And so look, verse 23 And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So clearly this happened much later after his ministry that we read about here in chapter 4 in Capernaum. But again, Luke here stressing the point that it's really about revelation of Jesus' identity. Well, all that's to say that as he begins his ministry, we're told that he goes to the synagogue. Now, let the reader understand something here. You, you can take verse 16, if you will. Look with it, me there. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day 
and he stood up to read. It seems that Jesus had a priority to be among God's people on their particular day. Perhaps a minor application for us that we prioritize. If you want to be like Jesus, you ought to see it as a habit to be among God's people every day, and particularly on the Lord's Day. Well, nonetheless, we are told that he goes to the synagogue, and it just happens to be that day the Isaiah reading. Perhaps he pre-plans this with the attendant, we're not quite sure, but he goes and he finds the place, we are told, the exact place where Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2 is found. You heard me read the entirety of the chapter. Um, And there Jesus begins to read. Now Isaiah 61 is within a section of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40 of Isaiah all the way to the end, about how God is going to deliver His people from exile. If you know a little bit about Jewish history, Israel was, uh, the northern uh, tribes were taken into captivity by the Syrians, uh, swept away, gone forever, bye-bye. Then the southern tribes, there was just two of them left, um, they were ultimately taken captive by Babylon. And the Babylonians came and took Judah and, and the tribes, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and God's people are now uh, away. They're, they're now outside of the, the, the promised land And God delivers through the prophet Isaiah a promise of deliverance. And so when we read this, we have to read it in the context of that particular promise. The people of God are in exile because of their sin. It's not because they are kind of down on their luck as a people. It's because they have willfully rebelled against their God. And God has poured out His wrath on them through the nation of Syria, through the nation of Babylon, and they are being punished. And it was in light of that that Isaiah promised these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of Jubilee. These people were poor and destitute. They were blind because God was punishing them for their sins. And so what Jesus is declaring here is that God has brought about through His anointed Messiah, Messiah meaning anointed one, that He has anointed Jesus to be the one who will deliver them not through their physical poverty or their physical ailments, but, but from, their, from their sins. Uh, friend, we, we will see this as we move forward in the narrative, particularly in chapter 6, um, or chapter 5, and then into chapter 6, when we see Jesus declaring that He has the ability to forgive sins. Forgive sins. Well, as Jesus reads this and stands up, He begins to preach His very first sermon. It's a very short sermon, isn't it? He declares that He is the one who has brought about fulfillment of these words. He is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to deliver God's people from their sins. To deliver them. This is who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He has come to save a people 
a broken people, an outcast people, a poor people, uh, people who are on the fringes of society. I wonder here how many have been to the doctor. You're sick. The physician gives you some form of medicine to, to make you well. But there's no physician that can heal a broken hearted. There's no physician that can give you some remedy to a broken heart. But here we, we are promised that, that He will heal the broken hearted. He will heal those who are oppressed. Friend, is that you this morning? Are you in need of a Savior? Jesus is the Savior who has come to deliver God's people. But we see also here that Jesus is rejected. Look there again at verse 24. Or rather, backing up to verse 22. And he spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They were like, yes, this is exciting. We're, we're, we're excited. This sounds fun. The Lord's favor is upon us because He's going to finally deal with our enemies. One of the things that's fascinating here is that Jesus stops halfway through chapter 61, verse 2. The second half of the verse talks about God's vengeance upon His enemies. And perhaps what's getting them really frustrated is the fact that Jesus is not declaring that finally God is going to squash the Roman occupiers. Jesus' ministry wasn't about that. Jesus' ministry was much different than the expectations that they had. But here we have in this His rejection. They rejected Him because He would not do what He had done at Capernaum. And he gives them two illustrations, one of Elijah and Elisha. And these illustrations are a reminder that God sovereignly saves. God sovereignly saves a people for his own possession. God judged the nation of Israel in the, in the, in the uh, times of Elijah and Elisha because they rejected the prophet's words. They wouldn't obey these prophets, and so God punished them by saving Gentiles instead of His own covenant people. It's a reminder to us this morning that God is a sovereign God in salvation. He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. Uh, friend, this isn't merely a doctrine that the Apostle Paul wrote about. This is the story of the Old Testament, that God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. It is also a reminder that the way of Jesus is the way of a cross. Following Jesus comes with a great cost for us. That of rejection we see just here. He, I mean, it's His first day in ministry and He's rejected by His own family members. His own hometown. This little small gathering. 400 people. Oh, He was known. Isn't that just Joseph's son? I mean, what? I mean we, we know nothing good can come from Nazareth. But so is the way of the cross. It's a reminder to us that we can hear about Jesus and still be lost. You, know, you often hear people, I think seemingly for good reasons, say, oh, if I would have just seen Jesus, if I could have just been there that day. Oh, friend, look at the people that were there that day. They sat there and listened to Jesus. They heard Him read Isaiah 61. They heard Him stand up and proclaim, I am the fulfillment of that passage. And they still rejected him. 
J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, let us often examine ourselves on this particular point. Let us see what practical effect is produced on our hearts and lives by the preaching with which we profess to like. They liked it, didn't they? Oh, that's a good word. That's encouraging. Does it lead us to true repentance towards God? And lively faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ? Does it excite us to weekly efforts to cease from sin and to resist the devil? These are the fruits by which sermons ought to produce if they are really doing us good. Without such fruit, a mere bared admiration is utterly worthless. It is no proof of grace. It will not save a soul. How often perhaps you've given affirmation. Oh, that was a good sermon. That was helpful. That was encouraging. But if it had little effect on your life, it proved to be worthless. It proved to be nothing to you. Friend, let me remind you of this tragedy. You can know a lot of things about God and not know God. You can know a lot of facts intellectually. But friend, intellectual assent does not save. Repentance and belief These are the ways of salvation. Trusting that Christ died because you are a rotten sinner in need of a Savior. It is only in this way that you can truly know the one true and living God. But friend, we must move along quickly here in these final verses. We see here Jesus' power. Again, as a kind of living illustration of, of the testimony that Jesus declares that the year of the Lord's favor has come, the year of jubilee. Everybody's like, yes, Jesus, that's great. Thank you for that encouraging, prosperous message this morning. Prove to me that you are who you say you are. And so Jesus goes to Capernaum, we are told. He travels there and he does, as was his custom, to go to the synagogue. I I do believe that Luke is subtly nudging here a bit. Um, In other words, notice where he comes upon these demon-possessed people. It's not down at the tavern. It's not down among all the outcasts of town. No, he goes to where the religious people are, to the very synagogue. In other words, he goes to church to find demon-possessed people. Amen. Amen. He does. And we're told here that he's confronted with this particular demon. And notice here, throughout this passage, we have several testimonies from demons. James says it this way, that even demons believe and shudder. In other words, it proves the very point I just made. Intellectual assent about Jesus does not save. Friend, you can can read the Apostles' Creed. You can memorize it. You can stand up and say, I believe that. That is true. You can tell me that Jesus lived, died, and was raised again and have no effect upon saving your soul. These demons believed all of these things. The the devil doesn't doubt Jesus' identity. And even the demon here we are told, what have you to do with us, Jesus, of Nazareth? Verse 34. Have you come to destroy us? It's a little testimony of their future. Demons know where they're going. They know that one day this this Jesus, whom they've been confronted, the eternal Son of God, will completely destroy them. And they think, oh, here it is. Day has come. I know who you are. Notice the testimony here. The Holy One of God. 
the Holy One of God. And Jesus in a moment demonstrates His power and authority over unclean spirits. He demonstrates that He is the one that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not the unholy spirits. He has authority over these demons. He speaks and they go. There's no debate. There's no question. No, Jesus, I'm fine. I'm going to stay. No, He speaks and they listen. It demonstrates that He is the one who has power and authority over unclean spirits. But not only that, we are told here, as Jesus has occasion to be at Simon Peter's house, does prove a bit of Simon Peter, though he denied Jesus, at least he cares for his mother-in-law. Verse 38, Simon Peter and the disciples are employing Jesus, help her, she has a fever. Of course, there's no acetaminophen to administer to her. I just want to point out one thing since we, our time is expiring. Look at verse 39. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Some power he has. Some authority he has. He, he, he rebukes the sickness. Now, again, I just mentioned acetaminophen, Tylenol. If you take Tylenol and you have a fever, what happens? Well, the fever goes down, doesn't it? But does it happen instantly? Does it happen immediately? If you've ever had a fever and you've taken medicine and you've gotten better, it, it wasn't instantaneous. And surely you didn't get up and do house chores. Surely you didn't get up and say, hey, I've got some dishes to wash. That sounds exciting. But that's what she does. It demonstrates to us the kind of power that Jesus has that, that it's totally, completely, and utterly gone, immediately restored. It demonstrates the effects in which Jesus has. Well, he goes on to say that there were uh, word got out, if you will. Okay, let's, let's empty the hospitals. Let's, let's clear the, the psych wards. Let's, let's gather up all the crazies in our town and let's take them to Jesus. And they do. Even here in verse 41, we have this testimony from a demon. You are, or demons, plural, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus will reveal himself in his own way. He, he doesn't need Satan's help. But throughout this, we see the authority of Christ and the power he has. He is demonstrating that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. He is the long-awaited King. He is the one who speaks and people are healed. Our greatest need isn't to be healed from physical sickness or demon possession. Again, our greatest need is to be delivered from our slavery to sin. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Friend, do you find yourself enslaved to sin? Are you burdened by the cares of this life? Perhaps even sickness and physical ailments? Jesus has proven that He has the power and authority to free the greatest sinner. No one too far gone, no sin too great that Jesus will not in an instant immediately forgive. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has my iniquities been cast. As Wesley's great hymn reminds us, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was set free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Perhaps you're enslaved in a dungeon of sin this morning. Call out to Christ, and that dungeon of darkness will burst forth in light, and He will deliver you. Cry out to Him as a Savior, for even the unclean spirits Obey Him. Lastly, Jesus' priority. In just a few words, just want to note to you, in verses 42 through 44, Jesus' priority. It was an exhausting day of ministry, and He went to the only place to be refreshed, communion with His Father. We are told that, that He went to a desolate place and began to pray. But the people, they still wanted Jesus. And they began to press on Him. And Jesus declares His purpose of ministry there in verse 30, 43 rather. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He was to preach, to herald the good news because that's why He came. He was the King declaring that He was the King who has come to deliver the people of God. And I wonder, do you share a similar priority? He had a singular focus on the kingdom of God. Do you? Are you more concerned about building your own kingdom or the kingdom of Christ? Jesus was about building the kingdom of God. His focus wasn't merely on meeting physical or felt needs, but to rescue sinners from the grasp of hell. He came to preach. And today, preaching has sort of gone by the wayside, hasn't it? Uh, we'll, we'll get to it if we get to it. Friend, let me remind you of this. If you don't hear anything else, you just jot down really quick Romans 10 and you go read that. And I want you to think, maybe I've been struggling in my sin. Maybe my faith has been weak because I have not attended to the regular means of God's grace. In other words, I have not plugged in to the source that God has given for me to get faith, to get strength, to receive power. It is through the regular preaching of God's Word that the Lord promises to build His church. Not because preachers are great, but because His Word is great. Let us be about the business that Jesus was about. Who is Jesus? What does He want with me? A friend, Jesus is the long-awaited King who has come to fully and finally deliver you and I from our sin and captivity to usher in this great kingdom that is yet to fully be realized. 
Jesus came to save the poor and the dejected and the rejected of this world. He came to save the least, that He would be made great. As we so often sing, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. He can, His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Call out to Him and His blood can avail for you, my friend, for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come just to be reminded that our only hope is You. To be reminded that that Jesus is a Savior. Our salvation has come because Christ has come. Oh, may we find forgiveness of our sins, new life and freedom to live for Your glory. Let us confess that Christ is our only hope here, now, and forevermore. Without Christ, we are lost. We are prisoners. We are blind. Open the eyes of the blind this morning. Quicken those dead souls, we pray, Spirit. Pour out Your Spirit upon those and that they might see and believe and trust in You. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Let Your kingdom fully and finally deliver us. For Your glory and our good in Christ's name we pray. Amen.